0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Barry Boys Archive feed. This is Greg Young, presenting a solo show that I recorded and released back on April 23rd, 2009. That is the story of the Puck Building, that unusual structure at Houston and Lafayette in the Soho-Nolita area. Its history has much changed since this show was recorded back in 2009, so stick around until the end of the show where I'll give you the current fate of the Puck Building. So enjoy this little tale of the mischievous little Puck. The Bowery Boys, episode 81, The Puck Building. What fools these mortals be. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a solo show for you this week. And I'm actually going a little bit off the beaten path with this one. To look at a building that's actually a favorite, I think, of a lot of native New Yorkers, but it may not be as quite as well-known to many who are living outside of the city. I'm talking, of course, about that most whimsical building in all of downtown Manhattan, the Red Brick Roman Revival-esque Puck Building. Now, New Yorkers know and love it, not just for its unique architecture, but for that gold pudgy statue that perches right above the sidewalk. This top hat wearing representation of Shakespeare's character Puck from A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it looks there kind of casting its gaze down at pedestrians who walk along on Houston Street. Now, if this building still doesn't ring any bells for you, the Puck also happens to be a very photogenic building and has been in a lot of television shows and films most likely, you've probably seen its ballroom in the movie When Harry Met Sally, and its exterior was used, of course, as a location of Grace Adler designs for the TV show Will and Grace. But its relationship with humor actually goes back more than 100 years to the building's creation itself, and in fact, it's humor that actually brings that gold puck statue here in the very first place. I'll also tell you about something very peculiar that happens in the year 1897, something that would have potentially wiped out any other building in Manhattan right off the map had this happened to it. The Puck building, however, was saved using a little bit of creativity and this ability to literally downsize. By the end of this podcast, I promise you, you will never look at this building the same way again. the Puck Building at 295 Lafayette Street takes up a very odd block in the northeast corner of Soho. It's bordered by Houston Street on the north and Lafayette Street on the west side. On the east, it runs along Mulberry Street. Now, if you were to continue taking Mulberry south, you would go on what I would say is a rather spectacular walk through Nolita, through Little Italy proper, uh, Chinatown, and then finally end up at the exact location of the former Five Points. You should try it sometime. The fourth side of the Puck building actually runs along Jersey Street. Now, if that street doesn't actually sound familiar to you at all, it's because it only exists the length of this building and one other block. So in essence, it mostly exists just to separate the Puck building from its neighbor across the street. Even for Soho, like, fashionable soho the puck building is tremendously beautiful and large and goofy i guess so how did this particular building end up here of all places well it was built between 1885 and 1886 but to begin the puck building's adventure we actually have to go back to the year 1838 going to vienna austria believe it or not with the birth of the man who would actually be the building's inspiration joseph kepler beethoven had been dead 10 years when joseph kepler was born and he took total advantage of vienna's many cultural opportunities to become a very talented actor and artist but his real talent in fact a little ahead of his time i think was as an illustrator and as a caricaturist so like a lot of talented europeans at this time Joseph came to the United States when he was 30 years old. He actually settled not in New York, but in St. Louis, Missouri in 1868. Now, remember, St. Louis was probably about the sixth or seventh largest city in the United States then? In fact, I would say it was the hot city to live in at this time, thanks to America's western expansion and all the traffic of the Mississippi River. St. Louis was also a huge destination for German immigrants who settled here in huge numbers in the mid-19th century. Joseph apparently decided that this was enough of an audience to start up an illustrated German weekly newspaper in 1871, which featured his own drawings, a publication that he called Puck, an illustrated weekly. All I can say about this is that, A, this was a bit of a flop here in St. Louis. I guess they just didn't get it. But B, it basically gave him an incredible portfolio in which to take elsewhere, which, in fact, he did the very next year in 1872, because that's when Joseph moved to New York City. Immediately, he rose right to the top, grabbing a job that year at one of New York's most popular publications, and one very suited to Joseph's talents, actually. He got a job at Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper. Now, if you've been to our website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, you've most likely seen illustrations from Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper because it provides really vivid, very unique images of events in New York City history in the late 19th century. Now, as you would expect, it was a typical newspaper that featured full-page drawings of the news and also happened to be a very political and patriotic newspaper. But also, I guess, being hand-in-hand with that, it was also very serious, very earnest. In fact, a young Norman Rockwell, probably the most earnest illustrator ever in the history of illustrations, even worked for Frank Leslie's at the end of its run in the early part of the 20th century. But it was here in 1872 that Joseph got his first big job in New York, his first big break. As we would say today, working at Frank Leslie's was a great resume builder, and Joseph made a lot of connections while he was here, networking. He met a lot of people, but for someone who was more used to doing, say, his own projects and a lot more amusing projects, he soon grew really restless at this rather serious enterprise. One of those close connections he made, though, while he was there happened to be the foreman of Frank Leslie's print shop a man named Adolf Schwartzman. Joseph told Adolf about his Puck magazine that he had started in St. Louis, and so the two decided to relaunch it here in New York for New York's German population. So in 1876, Adolf opened his own printing shop, and the two produced the very first German-language Puck, a humorous weekly. Strictly speaking, Adolf was just interested in the printing aspect, so Joseph was entirely in charge of the format and all of the content. Each issue would feature three full-page illustrations on the front cover on the back and one in the middle, and many smaller ones throughout at first all drawn by Joseph Kepler, and of course he would hire writers to write up the rest of the content. They would use their experience from Frank Leslie and they were in bringing over all these colored illustrations, which was actually something really rare for newspapers of the day. The content was actually kind of sassy for the day. Very wry, very satirical takes on the news of the day. Sort of a Jon Stewart's Daily Show mixed with Mad Magazine, if you can envision that. On April 19th, 1995, a federal bill. Building- in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It’s an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly, but there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Now, maybe it was the immensely larger German population, or maybe New Yorkers just got Joseph's Schumer more, but whatever the reason, the German puck flew off the newsstands. It was so popular that within the year, they began publishing an English-language version, which was even more successful. So within less than 10 years of when they first started, they had a circulation of over 80,000, and it was growing rapidly. What Kepler was unafraid to do in the pages of Puck was to skewer, often extremely mercilessly, any and all politicians on all levels, local, national politicians, you name it. Although Kepler himself considered himself a Democrat, often his biggest targets would be the big fat cats of Tammany Hall. And it often even took anti-Catholic, anti-Irish tones to the whole publication. But his favorite, favorite thing to do in Puck magazine was attack presidential candidates. You know, you keep in mind that print was the primary form of political discourse in the late 19th century. And printing methods were greatly improving, meaning that these messages could be carried well outside of New York City, out into the entire country. So like many Manhattan newspaper publishers, Kepler was actually able to wield kind of a lot of influence right from his office here in New York. So all of this gets us now to the year 1885, putting our budding publishers here squarely at the beginning of the Gilded Age in New York. The race was on to create these large, ambitious, often ostentatious buildings that sort of outwardly demonstrated your product's popularity and its influence. Further down on Park Row at this time, all the regular newspapers were already trying to outdo each other with taller and taller office towers. Kepler, of course, would catch on to this instinct, but he would develop it in a different area. In the 1880s in New York, the printer's district, basically the place where books and sheet music and newsprint and many other things that were actually physically produced, this was all centered in an area between Houston Street on the south an Astor Place on the north, so this was the printer's district of New York City. Many of the great printers had moved here. In fact, the Astor Library, which actually contained a large sum of this printed matter, actually sat smack in the middle of this area. So naturally, this is where Puck needed to be. They bought up a large plot of land to the south of Houston, facing into this printer's district. Joseph hired the architect Albert Wagner to design a steel-framed office in the then-trendy Romanesque Revival style. Now, the defining feature of this style is kind of readily apparent. If you look at the building, it's arches. Arches for days. Arch windows, arch doorways. The Puck building has lots and lots of arches on it. And so that was part of what the style of Romanesque revival is. With Wagner being a German architect and Kepler being his Austrian client, the building has a few more very obvious German touches to it. And of course, to put his magazine signature literally right on the building. Joseph hired the sculptor Henry Bayer to create a six-foot-tall Puck statue on the corner. This image of Puck was actually in the logo of his magazine. That Puck statue, by the way, is not actually made of bronze as it appears. It's actually made of zinc. Yes, zinc. And it's painted bronze. The Puck building was one of the largest buildings in the neighborhood, and it kept growing along with the magazine. I need to add, however, that in 1885, when the building was started, It did not border Lafayette Street on the west side because there was no Lafayette Street. But I'll get to that in a second. Not only did the Puck offices move into the new building, but they brought along their lithographer and all their printing presses. In fact, for most of the Puck building's existence, there would always be printers housed here. So many and so much so that for years, the hallways of the building and even the streets outside would be overcome with this thick smell of ink that would just waft outside from the windows. So from its new offices here, Puck Magazine continued to grow, and with the magazine, obviously, so did the building. They even extended it to the south to its present location in 1892. But a huge change to the building was just on the horizon, a massive and potentially catastrophic alteration that was certainly not in any of Kepler's original plans. When the Puck was built in 1885, the building stretched along Houston Street, so if you can picture this, almost 120 feet across. It was a huge building. It had five gigantic arches that faced along that Houston side. At that time, there was no street at its western edge. I believe it was probably abutting other buildings or another patch of land, but it wasn't a street. Now, just to the north, running through that printer's district, which I just described, was a small street called Lafayette Place, but it didn't extend past Houston. Lafayette Place was this tiny little street that had actually been created in 1825 by the owner of the land it was built on, namely our old chum, John Jacob Astor. Back then, of course, there were these mansions that had been developed along this little street, along Lafayette Place. In fact, a couple of these mansions are actually still standing along the street and is known today as Colonnade Row. You should check that out, but that's from this period of time. Now, flash forward almost 75 years later, the mansion neighborhood is now far less residential, the Astor Library is there now, and there's all these printing businesses around, but you still have Lafayette Place. In 1897, the city decides that it wants to extend Lafayette Place down to the Civic Center area, almost all the way down to City Hall oh but what standing in its way that's right the new street would plow straight through the western section of the puck building and of course many other less fortunate buildings behind it for that matter in most cases this would pretty much spell the end of any new york city building joseph kepler had actually died a couple years before and his son joseph kepler jr had taken over puck magazine also no longer with this was the building's original architect albert wagner However, instead of moving the office and simply wiping out this beautiful building, Joe Jr. decided to do something kind of extraordinary. He decided to lob off one entire third of the building on the west side to allow Lafayette to ride through and then build a brand new entrance on that side of the street. To do this, Coupler went to a relative of the deceased architect. So we have the son of the publisher and a relative of the deceased architect named Herman Wagner, who also just happened to be an architect, and then went ahead and completely altered the building, literally erasing one third of it. What I find really amazing is that you cannot tell at all that any of this actually happened. Now, there used to be five arches facing Houston. There are today three arches that face along the north side the park is so impressive and imposing today that it's amazing to just sort of stand across the street and look at it and imagine how much bigger it actually used to be well back to the magazine with the 20th century came of course the advent of photography of mass production of magazines and of course radios and film and everything else Puck kept chugging along during this time, but still fairly successful in different forms throughout World War I. But in a way, I guess you could say it was a victim of its own success, because in 1917, the magazine was bought by multi-millionaire publisher William Randolph Hearst who turned it briefly into a monthly magazine and then promptly killed it off within the next year. Hearst had actually been a frequent subject of abuse in the magazine, so I can't help but feel that this was just a millionaire's way of quieting his critics. By the time puck was shut down in 1918 the entire printing district that had actually once resided here had already moved on to a cheaper area in the far far west of greenwich village in an area today called hudson square near the entrance of the holland tunnel as for the puck building itself it passed on through a variety of different purposes various offices those large printing floors were eventually turned into ballrooms throughout the 60s and the 70s the building disintegrated along with of course many many other things in the city According to the website Forgotten New York, if you wanted your vehicle squeegeed, if you wanted the windshields clean, well, you just came to one of the corners of the puck building during this period of time. Fortunately, the Puck was declared a landmark in 1983 and was extensively renovated that year, becoming a space for artists, graphic designers, and photographers. Amazingly, believe it or not, for a short time, the Puck even returned to housing a full-colored satirical publication, the beloved but short-lived Spy magazine. Like Puck, Spy would also satirize and mock famous folks, with its subjects this time around being movie stars and well-known New Yorkers like Donald Trump and John F. Kennedy Jr. Spy, unfortunately, died out in the 1990s. Now, today at the Puck Building, you'll find some NYU classrooms, some art shows, design exhibitions. It's still very much tied to the graphic arts community, but you'll probably most likely come across it as a home for dozens of balls and parties each year in its grand and skylight ballrooms, sometimes hosting celebrities and personalities that would have been viciously lampooned by the very magazines which created the building in the first place. So that's my short history on the Puck building. I think a picture says a thousand words, and so I'll have a lot of these Puck illustrations up on the website, boweryboyspodcast.com. You get to see some of Kepler's work, and of course he hired many other illustrators during the duration of the magazine. In addition, I'll have some pictures of the building itself, so you can gawk an amazement that it used to be so much larger than it was than it is today. Thanks a lot for listening. Tom will be back next time. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. And so that was the story of Puck Magazine and its longtime home, the Puck Building. At least, that's where the story left off when the show was recorded back in 2009. If you go to the Puck Building today, you'll find it much transformed, but mostly for the good. Now, usually when you hear of a big chain store moving into an old historic building, you might silently groan inside but in the case of the puck building, the new tenant has respectfully preserved the building's history. REI, or for those of us who don't camp very often, that stands for Recreational Equipment Inc. REI is an outdoor gear company which started in Washington State in 1936. A big New York branch of REI moved into the puck in 2011, and while you'll And while you'll find a lot of tents and bicycles and apparel for the rugged man and woman, you'll also find the building's history. On one wall is a set of lithographic stones which were found behind the wall during the building's renovation. Stones from Jay Ottman's Lithographic Company, which produced Puck Magazine. Most dramatic, though, if you keep wandering along that floor, on the lower level, is a pair of nine-ton flywheels originally used to power the presses of Puck magazine. So a rare historic treat in store for you in the area of Nolita and Soho. I'm also happy to announce that our brand new book, The Bowery Boys' Adventures in Old New York, is being released this month. And the Puck building is one of the landmarks of New York featured in the book. In fact, this original show, the one you just heard, served as a sort of first draft for the eventual chapter, which then shows up in the book today. I had no clue, of course, when I recorded this back then, that it would actually see the light of print. The book is arranged by neighborhoods, and each chapter features one particular, sometimes overlooked place in that neighborhood. And Puck is proudly standing in as the representative for the Nolita Soho chapter. But there are many more secrets revealed in that chapter, both of the Puck building and, of course, that interesting neighborhood. So please pick up a copy at Barnes & Noble, at Amazon, or, of course, at your local bookstore. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Bowery Boys Archive. Check out out our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com and, of course, the main Bowery Boys feed for our latest adventures. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or.